Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, What I'm going to be talking about in today's episode is a bit of uh, a follow-up to that paper slash podcast episode that I recorded last week. If you know, if you remember, I uh, didn't put out a whole lot of new content because uh, of my air conditioner situation. I have air conditioning now, and uh, it's it's I can think straight, yay! But uh, for about a week, I put out old content, content that wasn't on the podcast, but it was on the website in other in different audio form. And they were audio recordings of me reading my paper, uh, the papers that were part of the the Primeval History series, where I went in depth exegeting Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And so in last week's episode, uh, I played an audio recording of me reading my paper, Genesis 10 to 11, The Tower of Babel, The Fall of the Gods, and the Divine Council Worldview. In that paper, I talked about the division of the nations in Genesis 10 to 11. Genesis chapter 10 lists the table of nations, and of those nations are the ones referred to in chapter 11 of Genesis with the Tower of Babel incident. In that paper and podcast episode, I explain how in this event, God punishes the nations for trying to bring either him or pagan gods down via a ziggurat to do their bidding. He does this punishing by dispersing them all over the face of the earth. Now, the whole tongue confusion thing and the dispersion thing is familiar to most people. Who hasn't been to church or read their Bible for any length of time and didn't get at least that much out of the sermon or the Bible reading? However, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 to 9 is less familiar to people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 to 9, we get some more information that was left out of Genesis 11. Deuteronomy says that when the Most High divided the nations, when did he divide the nations? In Genesis 11. Deuteronomy says that when the Most High divided the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. And it says that Israel was Yahweh's portion, Jacob his allotted inheritance. And so here's the worldview scripture is presenting us with. This is actually the Old Testament biblical theological rationale for why the nations have other gods and why there even are other nations to begin with. If you've ever wondered, where in the world did all these other gods and religions come from if there's only one god and only one true religion? Did these people just pull all these mythologies out of their butts? Did someone just decide to invent a god and a religion and a whole backstory for that god one day, just out of the clear blue? Well, the Bible says no. The Bible says that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 to 9, and some other places, uh, we see that God allotted the nations to lesser gods, lesser divine beings, B'nai Elohim, and more or less sort of disinherited the nations from being his own children, from having a direct relationship with them. He disinherits them. 
He prevents them from being part of his earthly family. And in Psalm 82, we read that, quote, God takes his place in the midst of the gods, end quote. And he judges these gods as being corrupt and judging and ruling the nations wickedly. He then pronounces, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any prince. These sons of God didn't rule the nations that they were allotted justly. They became corrupt and led people to worship them rather than their creator. And passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, tells us that these spiritual entities took on the persona of the pagan gods of the nation, such as Baal, Asherah, Marduk, Dagon, etc. So that's why... Now that... now. Believing that these gods are real spiritual entities does not commit us to believing all of the mythologies of all and all of the religious backstories of all the different religions. Just because we, just because we realize that there is a Marduk, does not mean we have to believe everything in the Enuma Elish. Just because we affirm that there is a, a being who took the name of Zeus, doesn't mean we have to be. Doesn't it, it's not polytheism. And I go into this in in the previous podcast episode as well. The the whole G word is kind of loaded for us. We kind of think, oh, well, there's only one God. There's only one G-O-D. But the, the, the way that the Hebrew word Elohim is used, that's it was really more like how we use the word spirit. It basically, the word Elohim did not mean a certain set of attributes. It just meant basically any kind of supernatural being who was a part of the unseen realm. Uh, and that could be any that could be any kind of spiritual entity from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to your disembodied deceased grandmother. Um, just basically anyone who was not part of the physical realm, that was an Elohim. Um, and I, and obviously, you know, we don't have to accept all these mythologies. In fact, I think that they're pro- more or less a lot of these could be lies inspired. By the ex divine council members. I mean, after all, if you if if you're a, a lesser divine being in rebellion against Yahweh, you're going to have to come up with a pretty cool story about yourself, about how you tamed the chaos monster and how you you created the heavens and the earth along with your uh, your brother and sister gods. Uh, you know that that'll give some that'll give the people you're trying to rule over some impetus to worship you, right? And and that's kind of what Brian Gadawa does in his Chronicles of the Nephilim novels. He, he kind of takes that idea, and so all of these mythologies are actually, you could say, demonically inspired. Anyway, Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, God allots the nation, uh, these lesser gods, and, and pretty much enslaves them to idolatry. This gets picked up again in Romans chapter 1, where we read that, you know, the whole people people knew about god but they abandoned him and worshiped the creator instead of the creation so god handed them over romans 124 but we know uh from the very next chapter genesis 12 that god did not god didn't disinherit the nations indefinitely from having a direct relationship with him but of course that wasn't 
that wasn't going to be indefinite because in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, we see the calling of Abraham. And what does God say to Abraham? You're going to be you're being you're going to be a father of a great nation, and all people all over. I'm let's see how to, I'm recalling that verse from memory. All, all the people of the earth shall be blessed through you. So even as soon as God disinherited the nations, he had a plan to bring them back. So that's that's the summary. That's the background behind today's episode. Uh, God gave the nations over to fallen ex-divine council members, people who were members of the divine council, but they rebelled. They wanted to be worshipped as gods themselves. Uh, God gave them over to the nations and uh, you know that's that they're that's why they're in, that's why the other nations were enslaved to idolatry but we know god loves the world john 3:16 and wants all people to be saved first timothy through 2 4 so he would not abandon them forever and that's what part of the death and resurrection of jesus accomplished jesus didn't just die to atone for our sins but to release the gentiles from the power of the pagan gods so i believe that not only does the the, the the crucifixion of Jesus. Not I do affirm that there is a penal substitution element there, but I also see a, a bit of. A, I also see where the ransom theorists are coming from. Jesus died to ransom us from the powers of the evil spiritual entities of this world, such as Satan and his legion. But this whole theology, this whole disinheritance of the nations, it shows up in other places of the Bible. Yeah. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it can evade your attention. So, okay, with all of that said, let's look at those three places. The first instance is in the, the, uh, the book of Second Kings. Why did Naaman want to take dirt home? He wanted to take dirt home. The first example of this allotment to the gods theology is in Second Kings. I want to read the whole passage. Second Kings chapter five verses one to nine re, uh, to nineteen. Second Kings chapter five verses one to nineteen reads: Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. 
But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Sent, uh, let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger, a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not are not Abanic and Far Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a... It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. He said to him, Go in peace. So that's the passage. Uh, here we have a Syrian commander named Naaman who is suffering from lef- leprosy. Uh, a little girl who has been taken to Syria from Israel in a raid to become a servant suggests he go to the prophet Elisha to be healed, and he does so. At first, he is offended by Elisha not coming out. Naaman is a high-ranking op- Syrian officer, after all. Elisha should show some respect, right? So Ma- Naaman is like, to Sheol with this, I'm going home. But his servants say to him in a nutshell, hey, he told you to wash in the Jordan. You should at least try it. It can't hurt, right? But what might strike some readers as odd is Naaman's request to Elisha to take dirt home with him. Two mule loads, in fact. As much dirt as two mules could carry. Why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would he want to take dirt with him back to his land? Well, in his book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible, Michael Heiser explains that, quote, The dirt and Naaman's new allegiance to the God of Israel are related. Naaman was a man with significant duties in his home country. He couldn't stay in Israel, but he could take Israel with him. Why would he want to? Naaman's unusual request stems from the ancient and biblical conception that the earth is the locale for a cosmic turf war. Naaman wanted dirt from Israel because Israel was Yahweh's territory. The dirt which is Yahweh's domain is holy ground. 
The idea derives from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 to 9, where we learn that when God divided up the nations at the Tower of Babel, they were allotted to the sons of God. The nations of the world were, in effect, disinherited by Yahweh as his own earthly family. Immediately after Babel, Yahweh called Abraham and the nation of Israel was created. Israel was therefore Yahweh's portion, Deuteronomy 32.9, whereas all the other nations belong to the sons of God whom Israel was forbidden to worship. As a result, Israel was holy ground. The territory of, of every other nation was not, end quote. Uh, that is a quote from Michael Heiser's I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. Now, the next example I want to talk about is we're out of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now, and this is in Matthew chapter 4, and also it's a parallel uh, narrative in Mark. It's the temptation, uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Sa uh, Satan is tempting Jesus after, after Jesus fasted for 40 days. At one point, Quote, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. End quote. That's verses. That's Matthew chapter four, verses eight to nine. Now, Jesus doesn't convert to Satanism. Instead, he rebukes Satan and says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's verse 10. What always struck me as odd, and I'm sure I'm not the only person, but Satan seemed to think that he owned the world, and that therefore he had something to bargain Jesus with. But isn't Jesus God? That's what John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 2, 1030 and a whole host of other biblical passages teach Jesus is the Lord and the earth is the Lord's and everything in it Psalm 24 1 so Jesus already owns the world Satan is offering Jesus something he already owns is Satan really that stupid well if you've studied the history of the Roman Empire you'll know that by the first century, Rome had conquered a massive portion of the ancient world. The Roman Empire ruled all of Israel, all of Italy, Britain, Arabia, Armenia, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Asia, and more. The Roman Empire was gigantic. It covered pretty much every geographical area that the ancients knew about at the time. In, in other words, the whole world for them, what they considered the whole world. Uh, the people in that time and place did not know about the existence of North America, South America, China, Japan. For them, Rome ruled over the entire world. Now, the head of Rome's pantheon, and I, I think the emperor's uh, patron deity, it was Nero's patron deity, uh, is Apollyon, the sun god Apollyon. Now, why is this Roman sun god important? Because according to Smith's Bible Dictionary, quote, Apollyon, or as it is literally in the margin of the authorized version of Revelation 9-11, a destroyer, is the rendering of the Hebrew word Abaddon, the angel of the bottomless pit from the occurrence of the word in 
Psalm 88.11, the rabbins have made Abaddon the nethermost of the two regions into which they divide the lower world. But that in Revelation 9.11, Abaddon is the angel and not the abyss is perfectly evident in the Greek, end quote. GotQuestions.org says, quote, in Revelation chapters 8 to 9, John describes a period during the end times when angels sound seven trumpets. Each trumpet signals the coming of a new judgment on the people of the earth. When the fifth angel blows his trumpet, the abyss, a great smoking pit, will open, and a horde of demonic locusts will rise out of it. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. These creatures will be given the power to torture any person who does not bear God's seal. Verse 4. The pain they inflict will be so intense that sufferers will wish to die. Verse 6. Abaddon slash Apollyon is the ruler of the abyss and the king of these demonic locusts. Abaddon slash Apollyon is often used as another name for Satan. However, scripture seems to distinguish the two. We find Satan later on in Revelation when he is imprisoned for 1,000 years. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. He is then released to wreak havoc on the earth, verses 1 through 8, and ultimately receives his final eternal punishment, verse 10. Abaddon slash Apollyon is likely one of Satan's underlings, a destroying demon and one of the rulers, authorities, and powers mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, end quote. So the biblical authors identified this pagan sun god the Romans called Apollyon with the biblical devil. GotQuestions.org notes that Apollyon could be an underling of Satan, since it seems, at least, like the two are treated as separate beings. But I, although I, I, I think it's important to note that in the ancient world, a subordinate's a, a subordinate's act on behalf of the master was often spoken of as though it was the master himself doing the action. But all of this is really besides the point. Whether Satan is Apollyon or whether he's Apollyon's master, I think you can see the point. The point can be made either way. I, I'm inclined to think they're one and the same, though. I'm not going to go into that right now, but it's really neither here nor there. Here's Okay, here's the thing. Based on what we know about the fallen sons of God taking on deity personas and drawing worship to themselves, see Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, and that these beings were given the 70 nations at the Babel event in Genesis chapters 10 to 11, confer Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. A good inference can be made that the god the Romans worshipped was actually Satan. And given that Apollyon is Satan, Apollyon is the chief god of Rome, the patron deity of the Roman emperor, and that Rome ruled all the kingdoms of the world, it makes sense why, in Matthew 4, Satan believed that he himself owned the kingdoms of the world, and that he had the kingdoms of the world to bargain with when tempting Jesus. It also explains why this would have been a temptation to Jesus. That offer, inheriting the nations, was exactly why he came to earth. 
Rather than go to the cross to suffer and die, all Jesus would need to do is to pay the god Apollyon a little bit of homage, and he would relinquish it all into his hands. No scourging, no being nailed to a cross, just a little hail Satan, and it would be over with. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't take the easy way out, because he knew that doing so would be idolatry. Uh, interesting, interesting little side note here. Uh, Satan taking on the persona of the Roman sun god Apollyon was was incorporated in Brian Gadawa's novel series, The Chronicles of the Apocalypse. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you re- you'll remember Brian Gadawa. Uh, he he wrote a Chronicles of the Nephilim series and Chronicles of the Apocalypse series. Chronicles of the Apocalypse takes place chronologically after Chronicles of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse. I like to call I like to say that it's it's left behind for preterists. It it takes a preterist view of most of what we think are end times Bible uh, prophecies. And uh, and in that novel he has a lot of of fallen angel, demon, uh, Elohim characters behind the scenes, doing things in the unseen realm. Uh, and they take on the personas and they've been doing this since the, since the Nephilim series, since the days of Noah, the, the identities of these pagan gods. And by the time we get to the, the middle of the first century AD in the Chronicle series, Satan He's gone through a lot of names, and now he's now he's posing as uh, Apollyon, the Roman sun god, and he's in, he's influencing the Roman emperor and stuff like that. And if you haven't read if you haven't read those novels, do so. They're they're really they've got a lot of theological and historical research behind them. In the Nephilim series, he's got append- appendices. Where he explains that he's not just pulling all this stuff out of his out of his hat, he's it's actually based on solid biblical scholarship and ancient Near Eastern studies. Uh, in the Apocalypse series, he doesn't have appendices, but instead he's just got a whole bunch of footnotes where uh, he explains that he's really he's really just fictionalizing history uh, rather than just making a whole bunch of stuff up. It's very good. You should check it out. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's why, that's why Satan thought he owned the world and why he had, why he had the, the, all those, all those different nations as bargaining chips for Jesus. That's the second area of this tower of Babel disinheritance uh, theology that you would not probably know i mean even if you did know about it it, it's so implicit it's so implicit not explicit that if you're not paying attention even if you had even if you did know about what what really happened at the babel event it might escape your attention let's move on now to the third example that i talk about in the blog post uh, and that is the pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, we read, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. We don't start drinking until noon. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. Um, what's going on in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 15? Well, it seems pretty clear that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. They started speaking in tongues. Uh, <clears throat> the people who were in Jerusalem at the time started hearing the gospel being preached in their own language, the wonders of God. And uh, yeah, that was the sign that Jesus said, hey, uh, before you go fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that's why they, that's why they waited 50 days to start going around spreading, uh, preaching the gospel. But there's a lot that's that's pretty clear uh, on it, on its face. But there's more. There's something way more theologically significant going on there. I want you to pay attention here. Look at the, the people who are in Jerusalem. They're Many of, gen many of the nations listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10, they are mentioned as being in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What we have here is a reversal of the Tower of Babel event. I mean, just look at both historical accounts. In Genesis 11, God confused the tongues of the people so that no one could understand each other. Because they couldn't understand each other, they couldn't continue building the tower to summon God or the gods down to do their bidding. In Acts chapter 2, we have God clarifying the tongues of the people so that everyone from all over the world can understand what the apostles were preaching at that moment. In Genesis 11, God disinherited the nations and gave them over to evil lesser gods. In Acts chapter 2, God calls the peoples of the nations home. After Peter told the hecklers that they weren't drunk, he quoted from the book of Joel. Quote, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all peoples. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in, in those days, and they will prophesy. End quote. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. The events of Pentecost were the beginning of a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. 
After this, the apostles would go on to fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples of all the disinherited nations. Jesus told them in Acts 1 to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon them, and now that he had done so in such a spectacular way, reclaiming the nations from the power of evil gods was underway. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. If you would like to read a whole lot more on this, I can't recommend uh, a source, a better source than Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. That's The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Uh, He goes into a a lot more of how this divine council theology, this Tower of Babel, disinheritance of the nations and all that stuff. uh, I mean, it's a whole book on it. It's very heavily footnoted, very heavily researched. It is a phenomenal work, and I I suggest that you read it. It's available on paperback, Kindle, and audio book. That's uh, a primary source where I'm getting my information uh, on this is is Heiser, but also some other uh, some other scholars. But uh, Heiser was where I first found out about this. It was like I- I'm sure if if you've never heard of any of this stuff, it's probably surprising to you. It was surprising to me, and it's really cool stuff. It, it, it's really cool stuff, if I may say. So. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. If you would like to get all of these podcast episodes early before they are released to the public, if you'd like to listen to blog posts before they're public, if you would like all of all of my Kindle books that I have written for just $3, then, <laughs> then uh, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Your support really helps the ministry, helps me to go farther, helps me to buy material for research, helps me to buy um, th- equipment that I need to make podcasts and blog posts, um, and it's really helpful. And speaking of patrons, I'd like to give a shout-out to Austin Long, Kevin Walker, David Parrish, Brandon Whitaker, Jordan Hampton, Edward Liu, Nathan Hamilton, Christopher Rogers, Andrew Melnick, and Michelle Minton. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, and I will see you next time. God bless.